Review, review, review. Ba 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 bum bum. Review, review, review. Ba 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 bum bum. Review, review, review. We review, we review. With me and you. Ba 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 bum. Welcome to our Time to Show Up review episode where Natalie and I take a deeper dive into last week's interview. If you hadn't had the chance to listen to that yet, you might want to check it out before listening further here. It'll make a lot more sense that way. That's right, because in this episode, we will be talking more about the theory behind the material that came up in that interview so we can better understand the elements that were going on there. We'll also be suggesting reading, practices and models that may help listeners like yourself who are experiencing resonant challenges and opportunities in their own lives. In this, our first season of Time to Show Up, we're making all of our content freely available to the public. But in the future, these review episodes will only be available within our subscriber community. Members of this community will have access to all Time to Show Up content, plus additional resources, materials, access to online forums, live events, and small groups. Since we know that just listening to stuff isn't usually enough to facilitate desired change, We've designed this community to give you the support you need to take your learning even further. And if you join us at the start of our journey and sign up before April 5th, 2024, we're offering a no-strings three-month membership for free at timetoshowup.org. That's right. And if you choose to stay on with us, which we hope you will, we'll give you a 25% early bird discount just to say thank you. If you're tuning in after that April date, don't worry, you can still try out a free two-week membership with no obligation. There are different packages to choose from, and you can find out more and get in touch at timetoshowup.org. So without further ado. Okay, so we're just coming out of this amazing interview with Roz Watts and wanting to pull from it some of the main themes and threads that we've identified um, and see if we can also think about uh, any kind of practices or theories or things that you can kind of pull from that story to activate, you know, some of those things that might've excited you your, yourself. Yeah. What, what, what excited you most? What was your kind of like, oh my gosh. cause you were like, <laughs> like <a sponge laughs> you were almost crying. I was like, where are my therapy tissues? Like, <laughs> I was dropping my pen, crying. Yeah. No, um, all of it. I found all of it very exciting and enriching. I think mostly because um, there's a way in which Roz approaches all of this stuff, which is very inclusive of all of the layers of her experience. Bits aren't getting chopped off and saying, "Okay, well, the grief isn't welcome here, or the rage isn't welcome mm. here, or the sense of betrayal." So there was something around the. Um, the open-heartedness with which she talked about all of these different facets, including the really uncomfortable stuff. One of the things that I found the most moving, and it was a it was a moment, it's like the nutshell, was love and grief being two sides of this same kind of coin, and that that can help us identify the longing. Mm. Um, and also the fact that when we were talking about the quality of risk-taking, when do you know when to take the risks? That for her, it was a question of not having any other choice it felt yeah. like when you're so filled with a sensation of, I have to move now. Um, and so I wonder if there are ways that we can get to that without reaching that point before the volume is turned all the way up. Like how yeah. do we gauge that that's the path that we're on or that's a sensation that's arising before getting to the point where it's, it's really, there is no other choice. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, there were lots of things. How about you? Well, actually, having you having just said that made me think. Like I was thinking, I think you don't. I think you don't have the choice at least the first time, right? Yeah. Because I think you have to. And I was just thinking about my own experience. Um, but like I, I, one of my first jobs, uh, one of my first counseling jobs was counseling in in a further education college, and then very quickly the manager left, and I took over their role. So I very quickly had That's this like, administrative <laughs> like HR job that I wasn't ready for, and it was in a pathological system, like you're talking about, like really underfunded, like really problematic. And I remember going on ho- holiday back to my home down in Boulder, right, which I mentioned in the interview, and had just this utter feeling of dread about coming back, like full-on dread. Dread Dread. going back to Colorado? Dread Dread, So dread to go back to work. when the So like every day that the holiday was drawing to a close, this dread kept coming back. And then I I left, I ended up leaving the job. I fought the dread for a while, but I left the job. And then when I got my academic job where I encountered a lot of the same stuff as Roz, I smelt the dread. I was there for three years. I smelt the dread and it was just like, I, I just knew. Um, Yeah. And I went and I gave in my notice. And I remember saying to the director of studies at the time, I was like, you know, I'm going to, cause you have to give like a terms notice. I'll I'll give my terms notice. And he said, Oh, have you found another job? Where are you going? And I said, no. (laughs) And he said, well, why are you leaving? And I said, because I'm unhappy in this work. And he just looked at me like I was mad. Like, Everybody's unhappy in their work, Aaron. Wow. Like, kind of like that, right? Wow. I mean, that speaks volumes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he didn't say that to, to his credit, but I was just like, I knew, for me, I knew the dread. So I feel like, I think maybe, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like maybe you have to experience that yeah. the first time. To know what to recognize. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. if the repetition compulsion is strong, as, as Ross was talking about, she's identified in a lot of places, mm-hmm. you might just think like, well, dread is a part of work, so I just have to get used to yeah. it. Whereas for me, it was a very strong message. Like, I was pushed to the end, but I won't be pushed to the end again. And I haven't been. Like, I really know mm-hmm. if at all possible. I mean, sometimes you have to do stuff. And I, I had moments of that since. Like, yeah. awfulness. Like, dreadful awfulness, but not dread of, which I think is a different... Different quality and yeah. different order of it somehow. Well, sometimes you just really have to do shit you don't like, yeah. like you just really do. And you know, maybe we can save that for another yeah. conversation, right? But this, but I was still committed to the idea, like like what Roz was talking about, in order to bring this thing to birth, you might have to do stuff that's really uncomfortable and that you don't like, Yeah. but you're not dreading the thing. You're just yeah. kind of hating the process. Yeah, of- maybe things that you're required to do along the way. And I think that distinction because one requires resilience mm. and the other one doesn't, right? Mm. Like if you're resilient to the first one, like, no, that's a really clear <laughs> message. Like get out if you can, right? Yeah. Whereas the second one is like... So pay attention. Yeah, like, you, okay, you might have to survive this, but it's worth it because there's some, the pearl there. There's the pearl of it. Yes. I love that metaphor uh, as well that she used. Um, I mean, there are so many elements. I think there was something also around humility, which was uh, a connecting thread as well. Like being being humble about your own position in the world but also understanding that other people might not have the answers and being yeah. gracious about that and equanimity again came up as one of the clear elements um also from a practical perspective she was talking about regulation and stress and how you deal with that and slowing down and making space and what i particularly was struck by was the fact that she used the word sacrifice mm-hmm. when talking about creating the space and slowing down and saying no to all the exciting things, which, you know, I just, this is coming out at a different time. So temporarily it's a bit disconnected, but 
taking on so many exciting projects and opportunities, but just because it's possible and then realizing that actually we do have limited time, we have limited energy and resources. And that if there's something that you're longing to create or a way that you're longing to live, there are going to be hard choices to make about what can I forego in order to make this possible? Saying and, no. Yeah, and saying no and knowing what to say no to. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts around that or other bits that jumped out to you? I think one thing that was underlying something that she said that I was thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mark this for our conversation, yeah. right, was the the level of intensity, the full-onness, the craziness, right? Mm-hmm. And how what she, you know, one of the big learnings was to slow all that down and to quiet it down and to make choices. But what we forget is that yeah. that's, that's an addictive quality. Oh, it's so addictive. Right? So yeah. it's not, I don't find it particularly pleasant, but I yeah. find it highly sensational. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, because you're like, you're like why? <laughs> yeah. It's like when I'm getting on my phone, I'm like, I don't need anything. And I put it down and then I pick yes. it straight back up. Yes. And it's what really... happens is when you, when you go into a state of constant um, intensity, you're, you're, you're level, you're like foundation level rises, right? So when you're not being constantly intense, you feel like you're not doing enough. Yeah. Raising your foundation like level of intensity. It. Yes. So we forget that, like, we say, oh, I need a rest, but we're <laughs> actually addicted to the intensity. Yeah. Right. So it's actually, I think, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist. In fact, you might know more about that than I do. But, like, when you give up the cortisol and the adrenaline that comes yeah. with a constantly elevated oh. state, there's going to be a kind of withdrawal from that. And to find that more equanimity state, to find the yeah. space that I think was in the final lesson that Roz was talking about, it's kind of like giving up a very exciting drug. Too. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think yeah. there's, I mean, if you think about it um, from the perspective of the tiny packets of reward that we get, so the dopaminergic um, reward dosing that we, we have, every it's a very Pavlovian thing that like you open your phone and you get the reward, you open your email, you get the reward. And stress itself can feel like it's rewarding because you're in this constant state of, heightened physiological arousal yes. essentially yeah. and then it's like um, and I get this so so often it's like I need a rest and then I finally make the time to rest and I'm like restless yes and it's that yes that weird place until you can actually force and sometimes it is like through it's almost psychological brute force to myself it's like taking the time where you have maybe some people will do like a digital shabbat where you have a period of time, a day, two days, where you literally do not have access to your phone. Some people will lock it in a safe, mm. which sounds extreme, but the addiction is all permeating. Yes. And so then how do you deal with it if, if not an extremist, at least to begin with, to break that cycle? Yeah. Um, I feel like we're going down a different track a little bit. But the other thing that I really loved, because it's um, something that I come back to because of my judgments, <laughs> is the costume of highly evolved, enlightened humans. Costume. Yeah. Oh, I love that phrase. And also, you know, us doing this, and we're obviously speaking to you and you're joining us on the camera or however you're listening to this, there is a question around performance and how we show up, how we choose to show up when mediated by technology that makes, you know, it's, it's asynchronous. People might be listening to this, watching this, obviously at a different time they will mm-hmm. be because there's no one else in the room with us. <laughs> right. But So there's also that question of, how do you engage in these conversations in this work when there's there's a lot of expectation around 
how people might judge us, make sense of what we're sharing, um, especially when it's kind of a TikTok, Instagram arena of talking about these things in a way that doesn't facilitate the safe boundaries that she was talking about mm-hmm. or the, the the conversations that means we need to take risks. And on social platforms, that's just not a possibility because of there's, there's just so, le- so little context. That. Yeah. It's not made for that. Um, so that really struck me. Uh, so how can we, I suppose, in terms of practical tools, find or create spaces that may not be evidently available to us on a day-to-day basis where you can have conversations that look at the deeper feelings that you're having without being shunned, without being shut down, um, having space for loving presence. I thought what she said about her rigidity around values like fits into that really well. Yeah. So like she really owned (laughs) her judgmentalness about it and that values might be amenable to change. But the Mm -hmm. way I'm linking into that is, you know, and she said something, you know, about like angry activism, which I thought was really interesting in that when she linked like my, you know, my abandoning father in the man of the patriarchy Mm. and academia, um, that projection (laughs) identification splitting like all that happens in real life right so it's like the the, yes there's these problematic things like the way like patriarchy and the academy and we use them to process our own stuff yeah and i think for me one of the ways of surviving that is more and more trying to be conscious of my own but also other people's that when the attacks are coming a lot of that's coming from that place and then in social media that's where it's even worse because it's like the home of projection and expelling this stuff right so it's like okay I want to take feedback from you or the people around me about what I'm getting wrong or what I need to develop Mm -hmm. but if it's an attack I also need to be cognizant that they might not be attacking me they might be attacking what I represent or who they think I am and and that's hard because it's very hard yeah it's that permeability (laughs) especially if you're someone who is desperately seeking connection and that's something that is, is one of your primary explicit values as well as something that you're tenderly trying to cultivate to then be on the receiving end of something which is quite pointed and comes from a really hurt place. Yes. And if it touches oh, your hurt place yes, as yeah. well. Oh, and it's like, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. Really not easy. Yeah. Um, there's something else about that that we were talking about that, that Ros was mentioning at the beginning. Um I think it was around creating a culture, a community, like these pockets of community that can start to enact and embody the culture of holding mm. and of sharing that can then almost like feed that resilience to these sorts of things so that when they happen, and you're talking about like the hurt places coming into contact with one another, that there's maybe a bit more spaciousness or somewhere safe to come back to to talk about it so that you're not then carrying this... Um, this attack and this defense and this kind of constriction that that there are so many of these little communities coming up yeah. and thinking about practical things. And I'm thinking also about the conversation that we had with Athene um, of creating these moments for spaciousness. It's much easier to commit to these little moments if you're in contact with other people who are also taking those actions. Yeah. So these sorts of little pockets of groups, whether it's a, a book club or a dance class or whatever it might be. Or a therapist. Or or a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
excuse me. Or a coach, but having these pockets of community where you can start to embody these cultural um, shifts and then these can eventually link up and create some sort of constellated change that is parallel to or then begins to sort of touch into the systems that are perhaps less healthy. Yeah. Yeah, like there's very people need recognition, like mm. authentic recognition of their as whole a self as can be, right? Yeah. Uh, the the darker sides and the lighter sides, and you you don't need to get that from very many people, yeah, right? You really only need like it can be one person, right? It can <laughs> yeah. be like two or three people. It can be a small community, and when you get that, it reaffirms who you are on a much more foundational level and yeah. those those barbs they still hurt but they hurt a bit less and they don't hook in the same way they don't hook in the same way and i think what what a lot of people get stuck in social media is another conversation yeah. is when they're not getting enough of that they're looking for it in another level yeah. so it does hook more because you're looking for the validation there but when you don't get it it, it hurts mm. so there's something about the equanimity equanimity and the yeah. slowness that Roz was talking about developing over time. You know, she could go back to that previous situation. It sounds like she'd be much looser mm. in a sense, right? Like much abler to be reflexive yeah. to the um, to the barbs than in the beginning when it was like really. And when it's so just kind of uh, raw. Yes. Um, yeah. And defended, she said. You know, like defended, yeah. and we do have to defend ourselves. Yeah. You know? And you have to know when to be able to open. So, I mean, I think that's one of the other things as well as thinking about tools for knowing, I guess, when and where you are. But I suppose the other thing that she mentioned, which I have a story around, like the, the um, choosing to call the was connect the, the was <laughs> the was what's choosing to call the connectedness scale, which she developed the what's connectedness scale, um, which I talked about with her on well, the, formerly the High podcast. Now I podcast Nasty and High, but one of the things about that, about staking the claim, it's also that we are constantly back to this place of ambiguity, the both and, the kind of, you don't want to have to defend, but you also realise that you're still operating in that place where defence perhaps is necessary in that moment for where you are in your journey or perhaps the system. And so planting the flag, but then being able to recognise it in its entirety also for what it is and not being attached to the defensiveness like when mm. things shift being able to say okay I made this choice this is what happened it's okay I've now shifted in perspective or deepened or assimilated more mm. of that kind of into a bigger picture of who I am and then to not rally against those parts that you wish you'd kind of that you'd done something differently or there's there's, there's that self-kindness that self-compassion as part of a wider cultural shift does mm. that make sense mm. um it's a yeah. it's a process it's a process of accepting like all parts of yourself, right? Yeah. Like you know, sometimes you need to bring in those defenses, and also you know, in the beginning at least, defenses are autonomic, right? They're reflexive. They mm -hmm. happen like like feelings and thoughts happen, you know, yeah. autonomically. So sometimes it's it's only after you can see, and even like yeah. after when you can see, the defenses still arise, and then you have yeah. to decide what to do with it. But it's you know, it's being a bit looser with that too you know yeah. it's like you can't just choose to just be open yeah i'm going to be completely open in this situation yeah. i'm not going to get defensive and i'm you know my values my irrational values aren't going yeah. to arise you know of course they will and that's i think that's part of it's always that pro you know you're mm. just always holding those things together and also not to stomp them down so there's this that other aspect which is 
that when the defences come up, it's indicating there's something there that needs to be looked at. You know, friction doesn't happen without two surfaces rubbing against one another, showing that there's some kind of, um, there's something to be examined. So I think the question then becomes what happens when that friction or that defensiveness arises? What's within (laughs) that moment Mm -hmm. that you then have choices to how you respond? But also what she was saying later about the, what might she now do differently if she were to encounter these sorts of situations again, like with the values and the rigidness within Mm -hmm. academia, being able to still say when there's something that's really kind of coming into conflict with values, having the spaciousness, the time to examine it and say, actually, this is still something I wish to speak up about, Mm -hmm. not suddenly kind of collapsing, but being able to hold ground and having perhaps more agency as to when that happens and how that happens. Yeah. In, Um, in, In the therapy trade, um, I guess we call this the, the, the capacity to sit with the capacity to sit with the unknown, so the, the capacity to sit with not knowing, particularly in relation to your client, right? So it's like something's happening there. You're having a feeling, yeah. right? You might be feeling defended as a therapist, right? Yeah. Their their values might not be the same as yours. Do you know, like it's not just like I'm this great open <laughs> thing, and like they're having feelings, right? Yes. It's like you're having feelings. Is that okay? what is going on for them or for me? Mm-hmm. And like, I'm just going to sit with not knowing this for a while until something arises. Yeah. yeah. And I think we can't ask people to do that mm-hmm. full time for sure. But what I liked about the interview and where Roz is at with Acer community and that it's still forming, everything is still forming, I mm-hmm. guess, really is okay. I'm really going to sit really going to sit with not knowing about this. Mm. Yeah. Just a little bit longer. And it's like about developing a, a tolerance yes. for the unknown. Yeah. A tolerance. Yeah. And it's not sexy. Um, it's, un- <laughs> it's really uncomfortable because yeah. we love to know with certainty yeah. feels great. Yeah. <laughs> and I think also, I mean, as we back into kind of the, that early stage honeymoon excitement of, you know, the psychedelic Renaissance of this is a, an extraordinary tool that has um, really, still untapped potential but then moving into a deeper space where it's like well okay what else is going on here and not losing sight of that but being able to kind of think about the other elements that have to be considered in order for it to mature and yes. to grow and to deepen um and that is such a learning particularly in i bring this up a lot the inferior and superior yes, things yeah. in, in Jungian thought and it's like okay if your superior thing is self-discovery working with psychedelics mm. getting in their community and the reality principle involves Excel spreadsheets, uh, pitch Conversations decks, with VCs. networking, all that kind of stuff. It's not gonna. It's not gonna feel good, yeah. right? And the capacity to hold the passion and not just dismiss oh, yeah. the reality principle or feel above it, even because actually, in my experience in that world, um, I was very surprised to find that those people have passions too, (laughs) right? People are people too. People are people. I mean, I've worked with people who clear out businesses in insolvency and I was just thinking these people are vultures, right? Mm. But they weren't vultures. And actually insolvent businesses need to be cleaned up and actually that can be done humanely and I've seen that done humanely. So we can really turn, you know, things black and white when they're not and being cognizant of that is super important. Mm. So I'm thinking in terms of principles or tools or frameworks, I mean, not all of the conversations are going to be playing quite explicitly in that space. Um, It might just be a question of the quality of um, 
attention that you bring to yourself and to others, which is not easy, but equally might not have an explicit set of steps that we can we can share and follow. Were there specific practical things or frameworks that you that you think of when when reflecting on Ros's conversation with us? Yeah, so two, two things come to mind immediately, and one of them uh, is Cal Newport's work on deep work, mm. right? Um, which I think we all need more of in that <laughs> when we get caught up into that high level of sensation, you have to actively make time for the ideas yeah. work. And the, the addictive part of the high sensation thing is you feel like you're getting stuff done because you're answering emails, you're putting out fires, you're submitting whatever, right? Yeah. But you're actually not like the doing the deep work. Is... Yeah, like like it's that's the um that's the dopamine bit, right? Like tick 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 tick. Yeah. But sitting saying I'm gonna go for a three hour walk in the oh. forest with the intention to really think deeply about how I want this community to operate or what the next idea is, and not be so yeah. like like I think that was underlying. Like we didn't yeah. talk about deep work, but I think integrating deep work into whatever you're doing is so important because it does not come to you. It never does. Like you have to make it happen. Mm. I was thinking about this the other night. I um, went to Five Rhythms, which I used to go to a lot for many years. And I'd forgotten how actually most of the deep longing kind of impulses crystallize when there's space to move and to dance and how if you don't create room for that, there's no room for things to emerge. Mm. And often these visions or senses are emergent. And if you get stuck in the practical and the doing, it's just a different headspace where you're, you're thrashing about the top of the water. And what you really want is a deep dive, snorkeling with a fish, and then suddenly things can just arise. Um, I'm, not, I'm not making time for dancing, by the way. Are you not? <laughs> no. Maybe I'm going to singing. Maybe nobody's around some singing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, well, we've all got our different ways of that didn't making happen. space. Yeah, okay. Really <laughs> on. <laughs> So what else? What are some other? So reflecting practical. on our talk with Lisa also, like this idea of individuation oh, right? yeah. and the wounded healer, both. Oh, yes. Why am I getting all yeah, Jungian? Yeah. I used to be like, Love it. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that these processes of being in the pressure cooker of going through the mud, that mm. they're never good. And I don't think I don't want to get into the myth making of, you know, a horrible, you know, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger yeah. kind of a thing. But, you know to bring out an old boring cliche, you know, deep pressure does make the diamonds. And I think mm. um, we have to accept those darker shades in order to in individuate. Mm. And I think making space, which is, again, is it's a tolerance thing to see yourself through those really difficult moments with the trust that you will come out with some kind of direction or learning. Yeah. I mean, I really believe in that in a non-woolly way. Like I really believe that that's the nature of reality. You know, you get, you get forced through dark areas and then you come out the other side and you bring something along mm. with you and you cannot live a life where there are only mountains and no valleys and yeah. only sunshine and no darkness. You know? Yeah. I, and also I always, when we think about these things, I kind of, <laughs> I can feel myself, myself kind of like gripping. It's like, you know, that the roller coaster is going to dip. But when you're going up, you're like, this is good. We could just keep going up. We could, yes, yeah. We could just keep going. And at the same time, I'm gripping and gripping, especially when these conversations arise around mm -hmm. the, the difficulty or whatever framework you want to use. I like to think of initiation because I think there's an element of, well, like with the pressure and the diamond, that there is some process that is transformative that will sublimate whatever the, the pain or the wounding is into something precious, into some extraordinary quality or thing or learning that you can bring forward but there's also the kind of the sense that 
you don't want to go through the pain. I don't want to go through the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how possible is it through these other routes in, whether it's through conversation or other people's stories or through music or through film, to, to access these deeper wells of feeling that we have so that we don't get into situations where we're repeating and repeating to get to the edge. We have to fall back into that chasm or that well in order to bring, draw back our insights. So I'm also curious about what are some of the practices we can engage in so that if we're not at that tipping point, sort of falling into the valley, that we can access some of that depth and darkness without having to wait to be kind of taken there did you yeah. know what kind of um well here's a resource then <laughs> uh i think it's i can, I'll, I'll put it in the notes but tra- cool. t- uh, sorry traits not states which is ah. this the the kind of meditation book based on really good research about meditation kind of the thrust of that is like it's great when you like you know try to meditate to get yourself out of stress right but like that's a state. So I'm stressed out. So I'm going to go do five rhythms or I'm going to meditate or do something that brings me down. Or you engage in a regular meditation practice or another practice that also suits that changes your, your trait, mm-hmm. right? So that when that challenging moment comes, you're more prepared because you've already built that the muscle or the Yeah. So the I practice. think, I think, I mean, I think a regular meditation practice is really helpful for that. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you that, um, Sometimes it's more physical. Sometimes it's both. Like a yoga practice is really good. But developing the deep work practice, Mm. developing things that strengthen the muscle of equanimity, space, uh, tolerance. To discomfort. To discomfort, Mm. to the therapy, all of that kind of stuff so that you create, you're just better muscled for it, basically. And community. I mean, this is the other thing I think as well, which is not – you know, when we're talking about the practices and the tools that we can use, cultivating those friendships where you're able to have these kinds of conversations together, where there there is a sense of safety, where, you know, this is something that I feel very much appreciative that we have, where you could just show up messy um, and be all right. Like the other person be like, I see you, we're good. Yeah, I'm going to wipe the snot off your face. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) would you wipe the snot off your face? Of course I would wipe the snot off your face. I put on gloves first. (laughs) (laughs) But these sorts of things where you have that, um, where you have that and you can develop it in in community. Yeah. Because shit is going to hit the fan at various points. And I think when you're, when you're able to hold yourself with a bit more compassion and hold other people, you don't have to do the heavy lifting all the time for yourself because you can't, we're not, we're we're not evolved for that. Um, I think one other thing that's really come up that's important is this idea of identifying identification or identifying with something, Mm. whether it's identifying with your values, Mm. identifying with the success of something, identifying with the failure of something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When you get stuck into identification, when you get stuck into identification, you, you, you invite problems because then things have to be a particular way with that identified part. Yeah. Right. And that I think the message that kept coming up in different forms in the interview was a holding things a little bit more lightly. Yeah. Right. Being able to, okay, I do have values. They are important to me, but I'm not going to be like this about yes. it. Right. Yeah. I'm kind of like, I can wonder about that a little bit. And I might not be the, the same person with the same values that I was five years ago. Yeah. And what's that like, you know? Yeah. And then something around the, um, beneath the sort of the stated values or how we expect these values to be enacted in the world. 
that there's something around, uh, like she was talking about with, with, with relationships with a figure who, on the surface of things at least, seems to embody a lot of the systemic trappings that she is railing or has previously railed against. Mm. Like I can definitely recognise that. And then what can happen in that space where something beneath those values, which is a desire perhaps to connect, to relate, to to belong with, to have conversation, to have community, uh, talk about sort of precarity of, of finance as well. Like what are all of these deeper longings or values and can they meet with someone else's when you you allow the kind of the, the turmoil at the top in the choppy waters to kind of drop a little bit and you mm. see if there's something else that you can connect with and meet kind of like with non-violent communication where mm. you go to the, the needs beneath the stated wants um finding if there's something else there to relate to and then there can be a more of a a reciprocal dance rather than like a, a, a clashing of horns like yeah, yeah. and also in that same in that same spirit you know nonviolent communication and interpersonal dynamics right so like i'm thinking about my own identification with things but also <laughs> we more call it projection or transference or something but mm-hmm. like this person i'm identifying this person as something too yeah right this person is part of the patriarchy yeah. is part of the system is the man I'm, and you know the, those things exist in a in a big way yeah but we're also addressing dis- them yes yeah, like that distinction between the system and the person like systems yes. make people do all sorts of crazy shit and yeah. um to be able to see the person like and you might be wrong about what you're identifying that person as mm. because of how they look or how they sound or how they behaved in a given situation yeah. but if you can give them a little bit more free reign to not be the thing that you're to assigning them you. to <laughs> yeah i think so yeah yeah, yeah. so i mean do we have more things that we want to talk about? Or is we that... probably could, but we probably, we <laughs> probably should draw it to a close. Um, but, um, you know, any of the any of these kind of resources that we're coming up with will definitely point point you in the right direction for. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and so until next time, thank you for showing up with us. Thank you for showing up. 